Uh, it's John chapter 17, verses 1 to 19. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you that you have provided your scriptures for us to read, to wrestle with, to understand, so that we might be able to live lives pleasing to you. And God, I pray that as we hear your word being explained to us today, that you would open our hearts, our minds, and our devotion to you so that we might follow Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Please sit. Well, 
Captain James Kirk was, of course, the commander of the Starship Enterprise. Appearing in his sleek Starfleet uniform on a regular basis with his bold and courageous crew leading them to distant galaxies to boldly go where no man has gone before. Sound familiar? Any Star Trekkies here? Season that went on for many years. On numerous occasions, this crew boldly traveled to other galaxies to fight off evil people who would be bent on destroying the planet Earth. But recently, we, did, we learned that William Shatner, who played Captain Kirk, had actually never, ever been to outer space in his life until last year, when at age 90, he became the oldest human to ever enter into outer space on one of Jeff Bezos' rockets. It was a short 10-minute voyage in which they were able to experience about three minutes of weightlessness and were able to actually uh, look at, have, have a, a glimpse of the planet Earth from that distance, that, that mar blue marble of a ball that, that is teeming with life, hanging in the balance in space with what seemed like a paper-thin atmosphere surrounding it. A rare experience. And when that space capsule came back down to Earth and William Shatner emerged from that capsule, he was not full of boasting and bravado about his accomplishment. He was actually in tears. He was overcome with emotion, saying, I hope I never forget this experience. What was it about that Star Trek series that made it so endearing to so many for so many years and the succeeding generations of that show? It was their mission. It was that they were sent boldly to go where no man had gone before. So the question I want to put to you this morning, do you think of yourself as sent? As a sent person on a mission? Are you one of the sent ones? You can think of yourself that way. You should think of yourself that way because you are sent on a mission. I love it that our daughter Ramona, uh, who is now serving as a missionary in Papua New Guinea, her email address has been for quite some time now, uh, going, going at sent.com which kind of describes her life. Jesus was a sent one. He was on a mission. And, and I'm sorry to say, Captain Kirk, that it, actually it's Jesus who really boldly went where no man had gone before. He went from heaven to earth. He went through this earth. He went through the temptations. He went through the suffering and the beatings and the false accusations and the betrayals and, and death on our behalf. Jesus was on a mission. In our reading this morning, we saw even four times in this short reading, Jesus referring to himself as being sent by the Father. And in our memory verse this morning, which is in verse 3 of chapter 17, it says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the tr only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, 
let's take a minute and just go through the memory verse together. Can we do that? And I'll just have you repeat after me that verse. Ready? And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's an easy one to remember. Well, over 50 times in John's gospel, that word sent is used with reference to, to Jesus Christ. John especially highlights that, although the other gospel writers do as well. Let me just give you a little taste of those references. In 434, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then, as Jesus comes to the end, he says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Do you get the picture? His life is all about his mission. His life is defined by his mission. John Stott said at one, at one occasion, if Jesus is inexplicable without his mission, should not we also be inexplicable without our mission? He never doubted. He never questioned what it was he was here to do. He was never bored with life. In spite of the, and we uh, on, on this mission, sometimes our mission looks like a meandering path. Sometimes we trip and fall we get sidetracked, we, we do forget. Uh, we will never be like Jesus in that regard, but, but we are on a mission. And even in the times of discouragement and our mishaps, our mistakes, our missteps, the fears and sometimes outright disobedience, still it should be clear about us. If someone were to, were to watch us carefully and observe who we are, it should be clear about us that in spite of all these things, we are on a mission. We are sent people. So in this passage in John 17, Jesus is coming to the end of his life, and he's, and he, and he's giving his disciples this final teaching in chapters 13 through 17, sometimes called the farewell discourses of Jesus. He has come to them, and he has washed their feet. In John 13, he has... He has taught them about serving one another. He has taught to them about loving one another and about receiving his joy. He talks to them about being connected and remaining connected to the vine as our life source that we might bear fruit. It is all about the mission that his, his life is involved with. Sometimes we talk about having a life verse. And I'd like to challenge you to consider having a life passage or a life section of Scripture 
that becomes formative for you, that you just kind of go back to again and again and again. For me, John 13 through 17 has is, is become my life section of Scripture. It's my home base. It's, it's, uh, it's my base camp. It's the section that, that forms my vocabulary. It, it shapes the, the patterns of my thought. And it becomes a window through which I see the rest of Scripture. So in this section, Jesus is praying. He, turned, he suddenly turns his gaze from the disciples to the Father. He turns his gaze from the earth to the heavens. And his disciples all of a sudden must have been a little startled. I mean, they've been, you know, listening carefully about his teaching, and then all of a sudden he's praying. And there must have been a hush that came over them at that point. Shh, the master is talking to the father. Let's listen to what he says. And indeed, let us listen to what he says. This is a prayer to the father, a great privilege and a unique opportunity to, to hear two members of the Trinity having a conversation. This is his, sometimes called his high priestly prayer, and rightly so, because it, it points to the beginning of his new ministry of praying for us at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Sometimes I, I, I've been working with university students in, in the secular campuses all over the world or for 35 years or more, and uh, sometimes I would ask students, uh, what, what do you think Jesus is doing now? And usually I just get a blank stare. Uh, or sometimes it's, well, um, waiting to come back. <laughs> but no, it's much more than that. What Jesus is doing now is he is our great high priest, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And we can get a glimpse of what he is praying for and asking for on our behalf by looking at this prayer and listening to this prayer. He begins by saying, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. Now, previously, he had said, the hour has not come. The hour has not come. And, and, and like at the wedding feast at Cana, my hour has not come. But now, beginning with chapter 12 of John, the last week of his life, he says, the hour has come which means the hour of the culmination of his ministry, his death and his resurrection. In fact, in fact, from that point on, from John 12 on through this chapter, the death and resurrection of Jesus are viewed as, as though they have already taken place. It's, it's such a sure thing now in his thinking. It's a done deal that he speaks of it almost as it has already taken place. And so he says... Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Um, glorify you. Glorify your Son in what is about to happen, the death and resurrection, but also it's time to glorify the Son as he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus makes an amazing statement then in this prayer. He says, I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. It's amazing thought. I mean, how'd you like to come to the end of your life and say, Lord, I have accomplished the work that you intended for me to do? How would you like to come to one end of one day and say, I finished the work you gave me to do? But we, we, we sort of look at that and we, and we say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, he hasn't healed all the people that needed to be healed. 
He hasn't preached the gospel to the people that needed to hear the gospel. Well, apparently, Jesus knew what the Father had sent him to do and what the Father had not sent him to do. And that was not a part of it. I don't know if you have noticed uh, in your life uh, this dynamic that's sometimes called the the tyranny of the urgent. Uh, There are always a myriad urgent things that are pressing upon our lives, pressing upon our minds, demanding our immediate attention, crowding in. That must be done now. But have you noticed that there's a difference often between the urgent and the important things in life? Have you, have you noticed that sometimes the urgent things crowd out the important things in life? The urgent things uh, are, are sometimes, sometimes I, have, I have looked back and I, I say, I think I've sacrificed the important for the urgent. And things like our devotional life, things like nurturing our family, our marriage, things like caring for our friends are, are usually not urgent. They don't feel urgent, but they are important. They may, they may not have immediate consequences that if we don't do them right now, but the, they will have devastating consequences in the long term. As I come to my senior years in life and look back and recognize more times that I have sacrifice what was really important for the urgent, I've come to to realize what is important in life. And of course, it's people. People are more important than things. People are more important than programs. It's the eternal things, not the temporal things, that are the important things. Jesus viewed himself as a sent one sent by the Father to bring salvation to the world. His whole life was intent on this one purpose, and it never wavered. He was a man with a mission. He was a man about his father's business. We learn in this little episode when he was a boy, uh, and and his parents found him teaching teaching the elders in the temple, and he said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Sometimes translated house, but Literally, it's, it's, didn't you know that I must be about the things of my father? And his whole life is, is characterized about being his father, about his father's business and doing the father's will. When he's led into the temptation in the wilderness by Satan, Satan kind of gets him and says, okay, Jesus, show us your stuff. You know, you've been fasting for 40 days, you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. Show us what you can do. Cast yourself down from the temple. But Jesus' response is, no, I must do the will of the Father, the will of him who sent me. I've been reading some of George MacDonald's uh, what's called unspoken sermons, and he, he talks about this, and he says, Satan was smart in the sense that he knew that Jesus could not be tempted by evil, so he tried to tempt him by good. Good things in and of themselves, but, it, but evil things if they are not the will and purpose of the Father. Do you see yourself as on a mission, a sent one? Whose business are we about? 
Are we in business for ourselves? Well, you may have your own business, but are you really you know, in business for yourself? You may be self-employed, but are we really in business for ourselves or really about his business? It's not only missionaries who are sent on a mission. It's not only what we call that terrible term, full-time Christian workers that are on a mission. Uh, sometimes when I've been in a Sunday school class environment, I would ask people, so how many of you here are full-time Christian workers? And usually a couple hands go up. And uh, then I would ask, well, how many, of here, how many of you here are full-time Christians? And then, well, a lot of hands go up. Then I'd say, all right, now, how many of you here are full-time Christian workers? And then all the hands go up. You see the point, we are all sent on a mission. And we are all called to be full-time Christians. Sometimes as I've worked in other countries in Africa and places like this, they said, what is it about Americans? It seems like their religion is more of a hobby than a way of life. And I say, well, yes, this is a problem. So are we pursuing a calling of God or just pursuing our own ambitions? We may be, are we responding to, to our, own, our own desires or are we responding to the summons of God, the King of Kings, to go on a mission? Well, when Jesus says, I've accomplished the, that which you've set me to do, what is it that he has accomplished? He lists them here, four things. Uh, he has given them eternal life. We've already seen that in our memory verse. And eternal life is to know the Father and to know the Son. That is the definition of eternal life. It's not following a set of rules. It's not a religious ritual. It, it is, it, it is a, uh, it's not even doing good to other people. It is a personal relationship with the living God. Sometimes people ask the question, uh, do you know the Lord? And we might think of that question as rather quaint or trite or old-fashioned. Uh, but it is the point. Do you know the Lord? Because eternal life is to know God, to have that personal living relationship with God. The point about being a Christian, the point about being saved, the point about being born again and having eternal life is to, first and foremost a personal relationship with God. And it is eternal life. He has given them eternal life, which starts now and passes straight through death and into eternity. And it is life to be distinguished from existence. It seems to me that when Jesus looks at the multitudes during his, his, his earthly ministry, he is just baffled how these people can be so taken up with and, and mistake this boring, humdrum, hassled, existence for life, life that he is offering to us. So do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Do you have that living relationship with the living God? That is the real question that is to us this morning. He has given them, secondly, the words of the Father. This is of great importance. Words that reveal the Father, Words that direct them to truth. Words that lead them to belief. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. He has not left them to flounder and wander aimlessly. Not left them in a fog. 
words that lead them to love one another, words that lead them to know his joy. In campus, so I've been in campus ministry all my life and, and in different parts of the world, in this country, in Eastern Europe, and, uh, and, and as we've thought about what it is that we do and try to define what a campus minister is, we, came, we keep coming back to this, this statement. A, camp, a campus minister is someone, is a man of God or a woman of God who comes to the campus with a word from God. And I can think of no better definition than that that I'd want to put on my life. One of the greatest privileges after 35 years in campus ministry has been, of course, to lead someone to Christ, to, to lead someone to faith in Christ and hear that, that first ever prayer which, you, which goes something like usually, uh, well, Lord, here I am. Uh, I'm, I'm, this is the first time I've really talked to you in this way, but here goes, and there goes the prayer. It's a wonderful experience to witness. And secondly, the great privileges has been to lead students into the Scripture in a way that they can begin to understand it and interpret it and apply it for themselves, to feed themselves from the Word. That's a great privilege and a great gift. That's what Jesus leaves behind. And he leaves behind, thirdly, his, this little flock, these 11 disciples that the Father had given to him. And, of course, many other disciples, but the 11 are with him in the upper room at this point, and many other disciples who have been following him for many years. They are part of his finished work. The Father gave him to do this is the beginning of a new society. This is the beginning of a new community in a broken world. These are the kingdom people, to use Matthew's terminology. They are the ones he has selected out of the world. They belong to him. There's this organic union that Jesus says, they are in me and I am in them, am in them just as the Father and the Son are one. And, he, and then fourthly, what he has accomplished is he is sending them into the world in verses 16 to 18. They are not of the world. They are called out of the world, but they're being sent into the world. This, this is where we get our terminology, our, our sort of our pondering over what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. They are sent into the world. This world, and the word world here in, in in this context, is the present evil system. It's not the earth, not just that they're sent into the earth. They're sent into this present evil system. They're sent into what Lewis, C.S. Lewis calls enemy-occupied territory. And he is sending them there. They are not of the world, and there's this precarious balancing act that we continually have to deal with as believers sent into the world. In contrast to isolationism, as we sometimes call it, or on the one hand, compromise on the other hand. We cannot reach the world if we isolate ourselves from the world, if we stay in our holy, comfortable huddles. We cannot reach the world either if we are no different from the world, if we have lost our distinctness. Or another way of saying it is we can't reach the world if we're unwilling to get our hands dirty. But we can't reach the world either if we let our heart get dirty. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. 
But if that salt loses its flavor, if that salt becomes contaminated, then it is no longer of any use. And if that light is under a bushel, then it doesn't spread light to those around. So then he prays, he goes on to pray for his disciples. And then later, we won't look at that this morning, but he prays for those who would come to faith through their witness, that is, us. But what does he ask on their behalf? This gives us a taste of what he is asking on our behalf now at the right hand of the Father. It gives us a pattern for how to pray for those under our care. I have used this as a guide for my own prayers for, for staff that I supervise, for people I'm mentoring, for my family, for my friends, again and again. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. First, it's what I don't ask for. I don't ask you to take them out of the world. Uh, I'm not asking that you protect them from hardship, not take them out of the battle. It's going to be difficult, but that's where we're sending them. But I do ask that you keep them. It's that word, keep them that they may be one. He comes back to this, of course, later, the importance of being one as a witness to the world, but that they might be one in a real organic unity. And then I pray that you'll keep them from the evil one. Verse 15. Deliver them from temptation. And then he prays, sanctify them in the truth. That is, make them holy. Make them set apart. Make them distinct, consecrate them, keep their hearts pure. So you have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, looking out for you, actively concerned about you and where you're at and how you're doing, praying particularly for you, for your welfare for your spiritual well-being. And I think that we are also invited to enter into this priestly role, are we not? We are also priests, priesthood of all believers, praying these prayers for one another and for those under our care, for our family, for our friends. And finally, we are sent ones. We are on a mission. It is, it is not some new mission that we are about. It's the same mission that Jesus was about in his life. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you into the world. And he sends us into the world knowing the danger, knowing the rejection, knowing the hostility, knowing the hardship. But fear not, little children, for I have overcome the world. When I was working in Eastern Europe in the former communist world and trying to oversee campus work, university student work in about 19 different countries, uh, it was a time when, when, when there, there was, in some countries, there wasn't anything happening yet, and we were doing pioneering work, starting from zero. And uh, as, as the, during, the, during the 1990s, when Yugo, the former Yugoslavia was at war and new countries were splintering away, uh, Bosnia and Croatia and Macedonia becoming new countries all of a sudden. And, and so I found myself in a place of going into those countries and trying to establish a new universe, Christian university student ministry. 
And I remember walking, distinctly walking down the streets of Sarajevo in Bosnia, trying to, on a prayer walk, basically, trying to find one Christian student that we could begin with. And I just said, Lord, this is your mission. This is not my mission. I'm here as your representative doing your mission. Will you please lead me to someone? And, and I met a pastor, a Christian pastor of an evangelical church who just sort of stumbled upon. And I said, do you happen to know any Christian university students? And he said, well, yes, we have one in our church. And her name is Anissa. And you, could, you should meet her. And so I did. And uh, we, we met, and Anissa uh, said, oh, I know seven other Christians in the university. And that began, be, became the beginning of the student ministry in Bosnia. And Anissa went on to graduate from university and became our first national staff worker in Bosnia. Jesus was on a mission. And as John Stott says, if Jesus is inexplicable without his mission, should not we be inexplicable without ours. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is truth. Thank you for interceding on our behalf. Thank you for showing us the way of this mission. You have walked this way before us. We have seen you as you went about your mission, and we learned from you. And we have your word and your words. We thank you for that. Lord, help us. If, if we have wandered away in some other direction, we thank you for your patience, for your kindness, for your grace to put us back on our feet and set us back on the path to pursue the mission that you have called us to. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.